You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. And for Clay to be with girls who are really struggling to be in school and get an education and to do a project with them, which was so much fun. Um, It was really, I think when she's talked about it, hearing her talk about it, I think it was a really meaningful uh, time for her. And so nice to have that time with her there. So ideas of oneself and realities of oneself meet when you meet people who are different from, from you. And you learn how to talk about those things. You learn how to communicate uh, your ideas about other people and yourself. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 252, Art, Crossing Cultures, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 17, 2016. Art reflects the culture from which it is created. This is especially important when a culture is irreparably changed by the forced movement through situations such as slavery and war of its people. Today, we discuss this with African art and culture scholar Aimé Basir and with internationally acclaimed children's book illustrator Daniel Minter. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. It's always a lot of fun for me to have people um, in the studio with me that I've known I wanted to have on the radio for years. I think that this next individual, Aimé Basir, is someone I really have been talking in my own mind about having for five years. So thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. Aimé received her PhD and MA in History of Art and Architecture from Harvard University and has an MA in Ancient Near Eastern and 20th Century Art from NYU's Institute of Fine Arts. She teaches courses on African art and culture, the African diaspora, American culture, cultural and critical theory, gender studies, popular culture, and the history of photography. She founded the nonprofit Africa Schoolhouse, which is dedicated to building sustainable communities in rural Africa for children without educational opportunities. And I've just cut out a whole bunch of other really interesting things that you have done that we're definitely going to talk about, but I really appreciate your coming in today. It's so nice to be here. And you just got back from Africa. I really want to hear about this Africa Schoolhouse that you've done. So it, um, it started in 2006 when I was on a research trip in the village of Antulia and working with a village of Sukuma healers who I have known and my husband and I have known since the mid-90s when we lived in Tanzania. And they, on the very last night of my research trip, they said, we need your help. Our kids don't have a school and we need a modern medical clinic. So it was really interesting, too, for me, 
having known them for so long, um, to also hear that this group of healers also wanted a, not only a school for their children, but also a clinic. So I came home really excited to help in some way. And at that point, we thought it was going to be a school for maybe 100 kids from the village. And when I went back to do more research to find out what did the school need to be, what did we need to do, it turns out to be a school for 600 children and, um, and also the clinic. So we, um, my husband and I, were at an annual dinner with friends. And, and I know you've heard part of the story. Um, we were talking about the project with friends and everyone at this annual dinner in 2006 said, let's do it. Let's, let's form a nonprofit and let's build a school and a clinic. And within a year and a half of that particular party where everyone said, let's do it, we broke ground and we started building the school. And the school was completed. Uh, it took two years to build the school. There's 14 classrooms and 10 teacher houses. And as soon as the school was opened, we broke ground pretty much the next day and built the clinic. And the clinic was built within a year. So those were the first, those were the two big, big projects. Um, And the clinic was opened in, the school opened in 2010 and the clinic in 2011. This last visit, you brought your daughter with you. And you've brought her with you in the past, but this, this time she was 15 and it really meant something. Yeah, it was so it was so great to be there, and we had uh, we had been as a family to get the project up and running in 2008 when we broke ground for the primary school, and the girls had this great opportunity to. At that point, we lived in a tent for two and a half months, and they were little. They were seven and ten, and they spent a lot of time running around the village, playing with kids, and um, just having a blast. And I think there was they made some bricks. They were participating and helping with the with the school project too. And we went back again in 2010, so they weren't that much older. It was two years after that, so they were then eight and eight and twelve um, or nine and twelve. And um, we also, you know, they saw some of the same friends from before, but they still were young enough that it was it was. Um, they weren't, there wasn't a meaningful way to really do volunteer projects. And we did do a project setting up hand, wash, hand washing stations, and they did art projects with kids then. But this trip was so much fun to go with our younger daughter, Clay. And she and I did projects with the girls at the girls' school that we're now building. We're now working on, uh, we're building a, a school for at-risk girls so that they'll have a safe space to go to school. And for Clay to be with girls who are really struggling to be in school and get an education and to do a project with them which was so much fun um it was really i think when she's talked about it hearing her talk about it i think it was a really meaningful uh time for her and so nice to have that time with her there you know that i have a 15 year old daughter and you and i were talking about this before uh, we came on and and i i often think about um what it means to be a 15-year-old girl in other parts of the world, that 15-year-old girls here and boys are relatively protected. They're still in this kind of childhood cocoon. But in other parts of the world, and I'm assuming Africa is no different, 15 is a very looks very different. What does it look like at the Africa Schoolhouse? So it's, uh, Clay and I did a video project with girls, and we um, we worked specifically with 12 girls. And spent time with them um, 
really empowering them to tell their story and thinking about what's this, what's their interesting story that they want to tell. And the girls each worked on with a partner. They worked with with another girl and just practicing working on their stories and thinking about what they wanted to tell about their life story. And these life stories, there was a lot of overlap, a lot of overlap of families privileging their son's education over their daughters. Um, the girls in the family, they all told a very similar story of going home after school, and some of them have two-hour walks to get home. So they have to get up very early to get to school, and then by the time they get home, they're, the girls are the ones who go to the well to fetch the water. They bring the water home. They do all of the cooking. They do all of the cleaning up. And they were saying, they were all, they were laughing about it. They, they were saying, our brothers, they're all playing soccer, and then they get to do their homework early. But we don't get to do our homework until we finish cleaning everything up, doing all the dishes, and then it's really late and we're very tired. So they were telling a very, um, it's a tough story. Only 1% of girls in Tanzania graduate from secondary school, which is a really sad number. How did your daughter respond to that? So it's, it's really eye-opening for a 15-year-old to hear the story of other girls who are struggling so hard and whose parents can't, um, can't sometimes pay all of the fees that are needed for school. There's a new president in Tanzania who has made all secondary school free as of January this year, January 2016, secondary school is free, which is ex so exciting. And it's now meant there's a lot of overcrowding in secondary schools because kids who had no opportunity before can now go. But you still have to buy a school uniform and you still have to have your school supplies and your books. And sometimes for some families, that's much too much. You were referencing my hearing um, your husband's version of this story, and that, of course, is because your husband, Mark, Mark Basir, is the head of the Portland Museum of Art, and he was uh, allowed to be, well, I don't want to say allowed, that's a silly word, but he, we invited him to be part of Main Live. So the Main Live that just happened this past spring is, is like a TEDx year ago, and he was standing up on the, on the stage um, really giving the background information. Mm. There was something about a friend of yours um, passing away at a fairly young age that prompted this group that you've described to invest in this African village the way that you have. Yeah. And this is um, our dear friend, um, Josh Delinsky, who was Mark's best friend, died when we were in our early 20s and uh, left a a small amount of money for everybody to continue to get together as we always had on the night before Thanksgiving. And his family lived um, and still lives on one of the blocks where you can watch the, the Macy's Day Parade balloons blow up. So we always had Chinese food and went to Josh's to watch the balloons. And we kept this up. He left this small amount of money to all of his friends that we could keep getting together. But we have kept getting together for years and years, you know, ever since. It's, it is um, something that we all make sure to be there for the, what we call the Josh dinner. And it was at that dinner that everyone decided to do this. And it was really um, in honor of Josh and this, this long-term group friendship um, that's really held together by this glue of everyone loving Josh, but being so close together. 
you have a strong affinity for Maine, and you've chosen very specifically to live in Maine. You've um, made it possible through doing a variety of um, jobs. And yet you still have a strong connection to New York. That's where you got one of your graduate degrees. I know that Mark also has a similarly strong connection. Why has Maine become so important to you? Oh, you know, when we first moved here, and we moved here when Mark um, got a job as the director of the Institute of Contemporary Art at Maine College of Art, and we moved with our our first daughter was six months old at the time, and we moved here thinking, oh, maybe this is one step in in this career path that we both are entering. And within six months of being here, we realized we never wanted to leave. We just fell in love with this amazing place. And I think we frequently say to each other, we're so lucky that we have been able to live here and raise our kids here. And it's, I, I, we still think about how much, how grateful we are to have landed in this incredible place that has amazing people, fantastic culture, beautiful out, outdoor life. It's, it is very special. I find it interesting that you, um, your focus has been on African art and culture, the African diaspora, and that you have this strong relationship with Tanzania. Where did that come from for you? You know, that's, it's a question that I have been asked so many times, like, why Africa? And it's very hard to explain why we're drawn to certain things. And from the time that I was very young, I think, I, and I grew up um, outside of Chicago, and remember going to the Field Museum as a kid, and just falling in love with Africa at that museum. And I, I just went back and visited this year and, and sort of felt that resonant connection that I felt as a as a kid. But it was always there. And even though I didn't study that in college and when I first went to graduate school, I wasn't focusing on Africa. I knew that I, it was something that I wanted to do. So I switched tracks in graduate school and um, began to focus strictly on Africa. Well, it's an interesting thing to hear you say, I don't really know why this happened, but I know that it existed. Mm. And then I went back to this and really believing that there was a reason for this resonance. Because I think so many of us feel drawn to something. And because we can't logically explain it, um, maybe we discount it more than we should. So how is it that you somehow managed to stay with that strong connection? In some ways, it was almost like a yearning, which may sound a little bit strange. Um, I loved what I studied when I first went to graduate school, but I was when I was focusing on 20th century art, I was most interested in the artists, modernist artists who were connected to and influenced by African art. So that was still like, I was still holding that connection there. And, and I knew when I finished that, um, that part of graduate school that I did not want to continue in those fields. I absolutely wanted to move on and, and study Africa. And it was it was like a yearning. And in some ways, I think that it was also a yearning, and I had never visited Africa, um, any African country, but it was a yearning to actually be there. 
and to study what was there. And when I first um, went on a dissertation, sort of looking for my dissertation topic research trip, I, as soon as I landed in Tanzania and got off the plane and smelled the smell, it's like, okay, this is it. There was something that just felt really right about being there. When you first came to Maine, I'm not sure what the, the timing was exactly, but I think it was probably a significantly whiter state. It's not a particularly non-white state now, but we have really been blessed by um, people from Somalia, people from other parts of Africa who have come to Maine. And I wonder how that feels for you to to show up and have it be pretty Caucasian to now finally having some people that, I don't know, bear some resemblance to something that you feel attached to. It I, I to see the sta- the the way that the state has diversified has been so exciting, and has also been one of those parts of Maine that we love and has kept us here. Um, when we moved, we were concerned that we were moving to, and I think by the last census, we moved here in 1998, and by that that last census, it had been declared as the least diverse state in the country, and we had concerns about that, and it was exciting to see the influx of people coming from Somalia, Sudan, Rwanda, Burundi, parts of the Congo. And I was just telling a friend in Tanzania, they were asking me if I get to use my Swahili often in Maine. And I said, actually, I do. And I have um, boldly entered conversations. I think most recently it was at the post office, at the Forest Avenue post office. I overheard two men speaking Swahili and I, I went up and I said, I'm so sorry, I don't want to be rude, but I I started speaking with them and, and they were so welcoming and kind and so happy to hear someone speaking Swahili. Of course, I completely embarrassed my kids, but <laughs> um, it's very, it's not uncommon that I have people around town who I can speak Swahili with, which is really, it's exciting for me. And How do you think that having um, people from Somalia, Rwanda, Burundi, how do you think that that is influencing Maine now, influencing Portland, Lewiston, and even other parts of Maine? Wow, that is a good and um, interesting question. Something I, I, I think that it's all of all of the communities are adding so much to our state. Um, we're a state that's had a long history of of people of immigrants coming in, um, of of Franco Americans coming in, and now we have an influx of many people coming from different African countries. And I think it just adds to this great texture of our state. You have this interesting um, connection with the African diaspora. Talk to me a little bit about that, because we've specifically talked about Africa, but obviously people from Africa are now all over the world and sometimes were forcibly removed from that country and taken to other parts of the world. What is that, how has that impacted you? Um, I think, you know, I see that really thriving African diaspora here in Maine. And and it's not it's it has not been a um, a large part of my research, but another part of my research has focused on a, a Tanzanian and specifically Sukuma culture diaspora in Denmark, 
And I see similarities between that diaspora and some and the diaspora coming here too. Um, so it's been it's been very interesting to sort of to see the diaspora here in in Maine. When I think about people who are several generations removed from Africa, their families were um, were part of the slave culture in the southern part of the United States. I, I wonder how, I wonder what they have kept with them. I wonder what they've kept with them from Africa, the culture, um, just the emotional connection. Do you have any sense of that? I think there's always that deep emotional connection. And I think even whether we're recognizing that or, or not, um, memories of places that we've come from are there. And even for that next generation, they might be there to some level. Um, I know that there's also ways that kids who are growing up here may want to take another path that's less traditional than that of their parents, and that sometimes can create conflict in families. Um, but there are very, there's very strong heritage that comes with people, and, and also those very difficult memories. Well, I remember when we interviewed Peter Behrens, who is a local author, and he wrote about um, Ireland, and he wrote about starvation. And my family, part of it came from Ireland, and it, it has always fascinated me, the possibility of that, that imprinting, that maybe I don't mm. specifically remember starvation, but what is it in my genetics, or what it is, is it in my upbringing, huh. that carries sort of shadows from, from that past and from that leaving of that country. Yeah. So I wonder if that's that's even a possibility for people who are several generations removed from from Africa. Oh, I I think absolutely, absolutely. Um, and it's many of the people who are who are here have have experienced very have experienced very traumatic lives before coming, and in some way, their kids or maybe their kids' kids. It's hard to say what what is actually held um, emotionally, but it's still there. It still can be there. We ask people who come in um, what their favorite places in Maine are. Their favorite place in Maine is, but you had a hard time narrowing it down. You actually said Long Pond in Acadia, Old Port, uh, any time of day, Scarborough Beach, Winter Walks, um, Keyser Lake, Five Islands on a Hot Summer Night, Mount Katahdin, Lisbon Street in Lewiston, the whole state, you've you've just you like you like it all but these are all very different and some of them are fairly specific times of year are these related to memories are these related to is it the the sense of place itself why tell me about that so it was i loved seeing the question um and as i was looking at it i thought oh wait i can't pick just one so i just took a deep breath and went very stream of consciousness (laughs) Um, I've had so many beautiful dog walks out at Scarborough Beach when it's completely empty this past winter. And that was just magical to stand there and just take deep breaths in that cold air. And it's there's so many places in the state. I couldn't pick just one. Um, and then I was thinking about just walking. We live um, in the West End in Portland and just walking downtown, walking to the old port any time of year, any time of day, feels so special to me. Um, I, it really was hard to narrow it down. I have so many 
And I think we as a family have so many happy memories of different parts of the state. And there are some parts of the state that we realize we haven't explored enough with our kids. Um, so we've talked about even just taking other trips around the state because there's still so much more left to explore. And I know those would make my list of favorites too. It's just too hard to pick a favorite. <laughs> well, I feel the same way. I don't know that somebody could ask me, yeah. you know, what's your favorite part of Maine? Because I'd yeah. say, well, what, what time of year or, you yeah. know, what, what exactly are you looking for? I think that's one of the things that I really love about Maine is yeah. that there's such a, a diversity of experience that's that's possible. We're Do very you, lucky. We I, we absolutely are. Do you, and this is, I guess, a completely random question, but do you see any connection between the, the visual arts that arise out of Africa and the visual arts that have arisen out of this state? Is there any kind of um, relevance of one to the other? That is such an interesting question. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel any real connections between the two, visually, um, aesthetically, I don't feel connections, but I think there are definitely connections that could be made of people painting or photographing or working on um, things that inspire them. So I see artists in Tanzania or East Africa um, working on creative um, creative issues that inspire them the same way that artists here are doing that. I think that's the one connection I could make, but visually not a lot of resonance. Well, it does seem as though where you've described all of these places that you feel very connected to in the state, and I know many people have the same response, that there is some, I don't know, some passion, some sensual connection. And then I wonder if that the same is true in in Africa, in Tanzania, mm. for example. I wonder if, you know, there is something big and bubbly that kind of causes people to mm. really be willing to jump in and explore things that are more artistic. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I know it's a random question. Sometimes I like to ask the random questions to see where they go. <laughs> These... Um, these last few years, I know you've been very busy with your teaching and with um, the Africa Schoolhouse, and you have children who are 15 and 17? 18. And 18. Mm -hmm. And I know that many of us, um, as our kids kind of hit that final stretch, mm -hmm. it causes us to return back to things that maybe we always wanted to explore. It strengthens things that were important to us. What does that look like for you? That is also a really good question. <laughs> um, I think that it's been one of the things that feels really exciting is that it's been really wonderful to um, work on Africa Schoolhouse and work on the projects, um, building this girls' school, and also being able to involve our kids in that too, and to have them connect and you know. They're helping brainstorm how we're using social media. We were teaching the girls at the girls' school um, how to use Instagram so that they could be Instagramming photos and we could actually be sharing them, you know, sharing them also. So doing things like that is really exciting. In terms of like what that looks like in that sort of that phase as kids are in, and you put it really nicely, um, kids are in that phase where they're their last few years at home before college. Um, 
I think even, or maybe this is just a, at this point in my life part, and maybe I'm not sure if this is the question you were asking, but um, it's meant also more grounding, more being at home to just enjoy time with them, um, taking time to do small trips as a family, and really enjoying every moment. Our, our daughter is headed to college in the fall, and um, every moment feels very precious right now, really, really special. Well, I, I feel exactly the same way. I have children who are 22 and 20 and 15, and so I've, I, I think when the first one was getting ready to graduate. I started to, well, actually, it was probably two years before he graduated, I started to feel acutely like that my relationship was going to change with him. And it's really interesting. It's really interesting that we grow with these other human beings in our lives and that they never stop being our children, but the way that they are our children and the way that we are their parents is very significantly different. well, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think it's been worth the five years we've waited to get you on the show. <laughs> and the time must have been right. Uh, we've been speaking with Aimé Basir, who um, is a teacher and co-founder of the Africa Schoolhouse and so many other things. I really appreciate your coming in and having a conversation with me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, the front room, the grill room, and the corner room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobsterman bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists, and we also host a series of monthly solo shows in our newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Eric Hopkins, Matthew Russ, Jane Damon, William Crosby, and Ruth Hamill, to name a few. Please visit our website for complete show details at artcollectormaine.com. It is my great pleasure today to speak with Daniel Minter, who, along with his wife, Marcia, was featured in The Art of Style in the April issue of Old Port Magazine. Born in Ellaville, a small rural community in southern Georgia, Daniel Minter has illustrated nine children's books, including Ellen's Broom, written by Kelly Starling Lyons, Seven Spools of Thread, a Kwanzaa story by Angela Shelf Medeiros, and The Riches of Osceola McCarty by Evelyn Coleman. Minter's paintings and sculptures have been exhibited internationally at galleries and museums, including the Seattle Art Museum, the Tacoma Art Museum, Bates College, Hammond's House Museum, and the Meridian International Center. Thanks so much for coming in today, Daniel. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm interested in the work that you do because um, it's something that we don't have as much of here in Maine. We have a lot of focus on uh, Maine-centered uh, themes, but your your books are so beautiful in a very different way, and they talk a lot more about I don't know an aspect of life that maybe we don't mm-hmm. get to look into that much. Well, uh, if you if you notice, a lot of my books are about place, you know, um, and even though they may not be directly about Maine, 
they are about uh, they're about communities of people, you know, groups of people, and uh, and people uh, creating uh, creating culture, you know, and usually it's in a uh, uh, most of my books deal with uh, African American themes, though not all, uh, because that's I guess that's my that's where I'm from you know and that is the language that I use to tell my story but I'm I'm also telling the story of smaller main communities within that within those stories I'm interested in um, how as an artist you decided what your story was what what was it that you wanted to focus on and why why was community important to you um I guess it's because I, I was um when I, well where I grew up there was there were no artists there it did you know the the you could not work as an artist it just it didn't exist you could be um a uh sign painter you could be a carpenter you could uh you could fix things you could do things build things with your hands you could make sculptures and you know and things and put in your put in your backyard and fill your yard with all these things and stuff but you were not an artist you know, you weren't called an artist. You were some. Uh, you 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 just you did those things, and people expected you to do those things and recognize you for those things. But they did not necessarily call you an an artist so much, and you didn't make a living from it. And that, um, and I always wanted to make a living from my artwork. I, when I learned that I actually that that was a possibility, and so I, you know, I did graphic graphic arts. And uh, an illustration, and that seemed to take me away from the thing from that community. It took me it took me away from thinking about the the community and the people where I was, uh, uh, who I grew up with, and who who influenced me so much. And so in um, and so I began to think more. I want to. I want to integrate more of that into into my actual illustration work. Uh, so I began to do the children's book work. I also began to do more fine more fine art painting and those kinds of and more expressive work um, on my own. Uh, but really, it was um, trying to get back to that from the, uh, you know, from the purely, you know, graphic arts. And about where in your kind of life timeline did that happen? That happened, uh, well, after, uh, I mean, I worked for a corporation, you know, doing, uh, 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 you know, uh, m lots of types of Mag books, uh, magazines, uh, promotional material, uh, uh, slide presentations, uh, annual reports, those kinds of things, um, and I did that. You know, you know, right after, you know, I did. I started doing that very early on, and uh, and did it for uh, maybe maybe about seven or eight years. 
so I guess I must have been about 20, 25, 26, you know, when I started to really want to um, have some something of myself uh, within my work, my, uh, my work work. As you were working and making money from your art through working with this corporation, did, did you start I mean, I guess I'm interested in the process because many mm-hmm. people talk about being artists, but can't. Mm-hmm. It still have to have a day job. Mm-hmm. They still have to do the things that yes. puts mm-hmm. the you know the food on the table. So, were you able to simultaneously start doing the types of things that showed more of your own self, and also continue to work with this corporation? Uh, yes, I, I was, but it was um, I would mostly just sh- I would show my artwork in galleries. That's what I, w- I was mostly doing then. I, w- began, I began showing my artwork, but I didn't feel like it was the same. I could. I didn't feel like I could. Uh, I could merge the two. I still don't feel like I can really, really merge merge the works. Just like uh, the um, artwork that I do in the children's books uh, is different from the artwork that I do for the uh, galleries, but I feel like there's a closer similar, there's a similarity now. I think that I'm beginning to make uh, more of a connection between those types of works. And how did that happen? How did that evolution occur? <laughs> slowly, <laughs> very slowly. It's um, it's the kind of thing that um, that all artists struggle with, and it's just part of, it's just part of, uh, part of being an artist in this society. Going back to describing where you were raised and and the fact that you could be a sign painter, you could be a a maker of things, Mm -hmm. but you weren't described as an artist and you couldn't necessarily make a living. Tell me how it is that there was some way that you felt supported enough that you could actually go to art school, you could actually pursue this dream. Because sometimes mm-hmm. when you're in a community mm-hmm. where everybody has a certain role, you you know, growing up, you feel as if you need to take on one of those roles rather than find one for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that was not difficult at all. It was, um, I mean, it was a really a, a, a natural, um, a natural thing for me to do because it was really important that uh, education was always really important and uh, education in whatever endeavors you choose was seen as a very positive thing so uh, it would not even occur to anyone to uh, to discourage you from pursuing education in, in an area that interested you. So you just, once you decided that art was where you wanted to go, people just said, go for it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you find that that's true in the students that you're um, instructing at the Maine College of Art? I feel like that uh, it's a lot different now because uh, when I I went to school, uh, there there was not this huge, huge, huge... uh, family commitment to to get that to get that student through into and through school um, 
I I feel like I did it uh, a lot of it on my own. It was um, the there was there was pressure to pay for it, but that pressure was you know on me, and it was and I did not see it as overwhelming. Uh, the commitment that you put into uh, paying for school is the biggest thing about school now, and I think that that uh, that that burden uh, limits the students' creativity a lot and freedom and sense that they are on a on a journey. You know, it's almost like they're they they are not uh, free to to fly yet because they still have this 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 great weight that they know is gonna is gonna crash down on them as soon as they get out of school and uh, I, I I find that um, that a lot of a lot of students have a, a really hard time uh, looking at the world today and seeing how am I going to fit into it It must be for you um, a funny place to be because you're also the father of a, a student who's finishing his first year mm-hmm. of college and is an art student. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yes. you are both, you've sort of been this person yourself. You are mm-hmm. teaching these people yourself, and now you yeah. have a child who yes. is experiencing this. Mm-hmm. So what what types of conversations do you have with your son about this? Well, the types of things that I feel like are valuable in uh, in being an artist is the uh, flexibility and the the ability to to create your create yourself create what it is that you that you are um and so you can't limit yourself to i'm going to be just this and when you you know when you are an artist you begin to realize that you cannot be just this and a lot of times so you may have you can be um a very technical type person you can be a um a very uh, ephemeral type person that you know pulls things together, but those things are valuable in a lot of different situations. And if you are an artist, you can find where your where your value is in those situations. And if other people are smart, they will realize that that value that you bring to these areas. The reason that I keep talking about this is because it's something that I think that we all are trying, we all deal with mm-hmm. as creative beings. I mean, most humans have some spark of creativity. I would say all humans have a spark of creativity in them, whether they self identify as artists or not. But there's, you know, it's almost a different mindset that's required in some ways to say work for a corporation and do that sort of creativity versus the type of creativity that one would need to purely paint or you know create something from nothing well um you don't have to be creative to be an artist because not today because they you can 
you can imitate and be a successful artist if you if that's what you want to do. You, I mean, you can you uh, and you don't have to be an artist to be creative. Uh, there's uh, what you have to be creative. You have to be able to um, take situations from one area and apply them to another area and then apply that to another area and un and still understand the the functionality of that of that thing that's creativity and when you do when you, and you can do that in a lot of different areas so a lot of a lot of times you think that you that artists are creative a lot of times artists are not creative you know, and people, a lot of times people think that if you are not an artist, you are not creative. That's not true. You know, uh, it's, it's dealing with things that are different uh, and applying those things. That's creativity. That makes sense the way that you're <laughs> describing it and mm -hmm. thinking about the work that you have done um, because not only do you create artwork that is really all around the country, places like Seattle and Bates College, and um, but you also you do this, these beautiful illustrations. So you're working with authors to mm -hmm. put a visual, I don't know, to co-create, I guess, a book mm -hmm. with visual and words. And you've also done, I think, you've created two stamps. That's a right. very utilitarian mm -hmm. and yes, also art. I enjoyed the utilitarian function of that. I enjoyed doing utilitarian type work. I mean, it's uh, there is a there's a place for that, and um, I enjoy doing things for other people. You know, I enjoy uh, clarifying an idea that another person has, and then bringing uh, bringing imagery to that. Uh, and 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 releasing ownership you know it's like it's 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 not mine it's yours you know i did you know i i did this for you i get satisfaction from that uh that part of it but uh and there's and like i say there is a place to that that is the service part of being an artist i think and i think every artist should be able to do that for another person uh that's to me, that's our function. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's it's in a way, it's uh, it it's uh, we interpret the world for other for other people a lot of times. Uh, so we we should we if you want to call yourself an artist, you should be able to function as an artist for other people. You have a a strong um, inclination towards the, the understanding of memory and the ways in which memory is embedded into our past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. Is this part of that interpretive aspect that you're talking about? Um, in a way, the memory is the biggest part of our world. Okay, it's, the big, it's, it's, it's what we live with the longest. You know, it's what's... Uh, is what's with us most time, and it's also the most uh, the most fluid. You know, it's not all just because we remember something doesn't mean that, that it happened. Uh, you know, or it happened the way it, it changes or whatever. Uh, but it's but your memories have been with you as long as you've been alive. 
you know, uh, whereas each day is, you know, is a brief thing. It's, you know, it's, it, it go, it's flowing right into memory. So, and we have no, and we have only a concept of the future. So, things that we want to express, ideas and things, has to come from our memory, you know, and you have to, uh, you have to farm your memory. You have to, you have to actively put things into your memory. So you have to, that means you uh, have to actively observe, observe the world around you things, and then you go back to your memory and see how these things actually work. So memory is, is very important to me. It seems as though it, it it's also important in a in a larger sense. So mm-hmm. there's the personal memory, but then there's mm-hmm. also sort of more of a collective memory that mm-hmm. that you're interested in. I know that the books that um, that I have, Ellen's Broom, I have mm-hmm. The Riches of Osceola McCarty, and Seven Spools of Thread, and there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of memory in here. There's a lot of memory of culture and of mm-hmm. self and of place and of community. Mm-hmm. That's uh, well, when I when I grew up, those types of books didn't really exist, and uh, and so the memory of these types of of stories and were were a lot of them were oral. The it was you know the stories were were told and not necessarily. Uh, written, written in books, um, and they were so. So I feel like there's a an urgency in in uh, making them in making them into books, getting you know, uh, getting them down, uh, and also uh, taking those memories before they before they turn into. Uh, into something else, you know, before, uh, before they're no longer accessible. You've been a board member with the Underground Railroad here in Maine, and you've had an interest in um, African American culture. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think we don't know as much about. We're mm-hmm. increasingly, mm-hmm. I believe, more mm-hmm. aware of this very rich culture and how it has been interwoven with the history of our state. But it's um, it's not as evident as some mm-hmm. of the other things that we're aware of in our history. Mm-hmm. So tell me what that's what that's been like for you. Well that's uh, that's been one of the things that uh, that helped me to Help me to, I guess, find a find a place here in in uh in Portland, in that uh just being able to uh, see that uh, the that this that these places existed, that there's been a community here um, of color for a lo- you know for a long time for you know since since this um, uh, bec- since it became a state on its own. Um, and finding that there was a, it was not widely known and that people were actually curious. So in finding a way to share that with people and 
uh, while while discovering it for myself that um, tie, I feel like that tied me, helped tie me to the community. Were you surprised by what you found? Surprised? Surprised no. to know that there was so much that was in existence? No, I wasn't surprised. I mean, just because it's, it's um, uh, our African-American history uh, or the African-American aspect of American history has, uh, has been uh, understated. It's been um, uh, ignored for, you know, for a long time. It's uh, because it's complicated. It complicates a lot of the ideas of this country. And so rather than explain those complicated ideas, it's usually left out. So I wasn't surprised, no. Mm -mm. I agree with you that it's complicated, and I think that even people who would like to have a conversation about it, mm -hmm. there's, there's almost a reticence because mm -hmm. there's an uncertainty as to which direction we can actually go into comfortably. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think, I think there are a lot of people who really would like to explore it more but don't really know how. Right, because um, there's, they haven't been given the language and the, uh, the language to, to talk about it uh, openly. You know, and, and they haven't trained themselves to talk about it openly uh, because they haven't had to. Uh, you, um, you may think you feel one way about, uh, about people or whatever, but if you are not uh, encountering that person each day or, not, or on a regular basis, you know, you're, you have no... You have no uh, no way of knowing how you feel, you know, or how you uh, actually respond to this person. So, um, so ideas of oneself and realities of oneself meet when you meet people who are different from from you, and you learn how to talk about those things. You learn how to communicate uh, your ideas about other people and yourself and exchange ideas with other people and yourself and and find and find where the where the truth actually is well I appreciate your um, willingness to come in and and to talk about your art and to talk about some of these <clears throat> some of these bigger ideas um, it's interesting for me as I'm looking at the books that you've helped illustrate and having seen some of the work online that you've done, it's it's quite varied. You, I mean, there are some underlying mm -hmm. themes and techniques, but mm -hmm. you you seem like there's a there's an expansiveness to the way that you approach your art that it doesn't you don't have to have a single focus or a single way of doing it. Well, I. Um I'm in, I guess I'm, initially I am uh, a painter. You know, I like painting. I love painting, love drawing, that sort of thing. Um, I also like carving, working with wood and, and, uh, and other materials. Uh, the, 
The printmaking allows me to do both of those. It allows me to carve and it allows me to paint. You know, so that's one of the reasons why I enjoy that. Though I'm not a printmaker, I always say I'm not a printmaker, though, you know, it turns out all of the children's books that I do end up being, uh, you know, uh, the uh, print, the relief print. Uh, but uh, it's really the, uh, to me, they're carvings, you know, and that was one of the, um, one of the things that I grew up doing. We carved, we did a lot of carving, uh, relief type carving you know it was not a um not necessarily a i guess more of a kind of a, a folk art kind of way of, of doing doing this but um i don't see the art being an artist as being about the the stuff you use you know it's the stuff you use is is not as important as what you do with it. So sometimes I paint, sometimes I make things, sometimes I uh, I carve, um, sometimes I use the computer, uh, and I also, I mean, I also do design. I'll, de I'll design uh, things for people sometimes. So it's so it is varied. It's very it it um. I don't do a single, I can't say I do a single type of thing. <laughs> Daniel, how can people find out about the work that you do? Um, you know, really the way I like for people to find out about the work that I do is through talking to me. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, really, that's really my preferred way. But uh, but I'm easy to find online, um, and there's uh, there's a, it's easy to find the uh, children's books that I do find those, and then the um, the other types of art, the painting and work that I do, uh, you can find that online as well at uh, DanielMentor.net. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Mm -hmm. um, I've enjoyed our conversation about art in general, <laughs> but community, memory. I encourage people to learn more about Daniel Minter. We've been speaking with Daniel Minter, who is an artist based here in Maine now, but who has um, been really all over the country and has done many different things and can be found along with his wife, Marcia, in the April issue of Oldport Magazine. Thanks for coming in today. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 252, Art, Crossing Cultures. Our guests have included Amy Basir and Daniel Minter. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our art, Crossing Cultures show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. 
May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belay. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.